All right. If you want to open up to 2 Kings chapter 6. One of the things I did forget to announce, wanted to put this on your radar, is every week we have cold brew coffee here at Desert City, and that cold brew coffee is brewed at home. Uh, Tom Hagenon and Gabe Sly do that every other week. It's the best coffee around. I love it. Uh, one of the things we were thinking is other people have been interested in learning how to brew that coffee, and we'd love to add some more people to our hospitality team. So if you are interested in learning how to do the cold brew and would like to join a hospitality team beyond rotation like once a month, talk to me after the service. Let me know. Talk to Gabe Sly. We'll do a little training for you. So, all right. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. So let us go to the Jordan, where each of us can get a pole, and let us build a place there for us to meet. And Elisha said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, replied Elisha. And he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. And as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh no, my lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The son of man, the son of uh, the man of God asked, Well, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. And Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and he took it. Interesting story. Story about an axe head floating. We've been in a, a series called Campfire Stories over uh, the last six weeks, and we've been kind of going back through the Old Testament and just looking at these stories, these epic Old Testament stories, the kind of stories that you would probably hear or tell around a campfire. And these stories are always uh, mysterious. Uh, they're, they're, they're unexplainable. Uh, they're stories that we, we hear them and we're like, why exactly is that story in the Bible? What do we do with it? But it's there, so we don't want to ignore it, but like, how, to, how do we engage with it? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about humanity? How does it form us to be more like the kind of people God has uh, designed us to be? So we've been looking at some really interesting stories, whether it was bear attacks, crossing rivers that miraculously dried up. Uh, we've been going through these different stories and saying, God, why is this here? What do we do with it? And today's story is a story of something very impossible happening, this axe head floating. And then when we hear the story, we're like, well, I mean, so what? Like, okay, this is an amazing thing that happened, but like, what does it mean for me? Or what does it mean, like, why would this, why was it so important to get this axe head out of the water? There's all sorts of questions uh, that is brought up. Uh, the, the, the story is about a man named Elisha. And a lot of these stories we've been looking at, Elijah and Elisha. Elisha, his name means God is Savior, and he is one of the prophets of the Old Testament, one of the most powerful prophets of the Old Testament, and uh, he was mentored by this man named Elijah, and he has an inherited uh, kind of this uh, pretty wild religious culture. He lives in this Israel, the northern kingdom, and his kingdom has been corrupted by this King Ahab who has... Uh, allowed uh, his wife Jezebel to bring in Baal worship. And so it's kind of a hostile religious and political culture. And here we have Elisha, 
the prophet of God here, trying to be faithful, trying to turn the hearts of God's people uh, back to him. And then this story happens. And it starts out with this little phrase, the company of prophets. This group of prophets come to Elisha with a request. The company of prophets. When I hear that, uh, I think back to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's company. Back in, right before World War II, Nazi Germany, Hitler's on the rise. Followers of Jesus have to make a choice. Do we take a stand against this leader of our state? Or do we comply, do what he wants? And what happened is that the church got nationalized. Half the church was for Hitler and was okay with it and trying to just keep the peace within the country. But then there was this group called the Confessing Church that arose, and they were against Hitler. And they were looking at what Hitler was doing, and they were saying, this isn't right. And as followers of Jesus, we can't stand with this. And they started this thing called the Confessing Church, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the pastors that helped start this Confessing Church. As uh, they were illegal in their actions, one of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer did is he, he spoke out against Hitler. If Hitler was called the Führer, uh, I think he called him the Werthführer, which means, Führer means leader. He called him the misleader or the seducer of his country. Um, pretty radical words to say that about someone as powerful as Hitler if you're living in Germany. One of the things that Bonhoeffer was uh, uh, zealous about was keeping the church away from being corrupted by the Nazi power. And as they had started this confessing church within Germany, he started a secret seminary a secret seminary where he was training pastors illegally, training pastors for the confessing church, training pastors at this place called the Finkenwald, which sounds like something off Harry Potter. <laughs> and there was this group of pastors that got together and decided, we're going to continue to pastor this confessing church in the midst of Nazi Germany to be what God, we believe God has called the church to be. Eric Metaxas tells about this story in his Biography of Bonhoeffer about this group of pastors that got together, this company of pastors who practiced the way of Jesus right in the shadow of Hitler. This group became somewhat famous in that time, uh, and it grew in popularity. It was something that was uh, very dangerous to be a part of. I think about that because this story starts talking about this company of prophets. Who were these company of prophets? This is a, a culture where King Ahab has brought Baal worship in. We know it's something that is a, a violent culture for people who are following God. And yet there's this company of prophets. There's always seems to be this faithful remnant within culture that wants to be faithful to what God has called his people to be. And I think it was the same, it's the same way as this underground uh, seminary in Germany, this company of prophets. There's a series of stories between them and Elisha, and Elisha's leading them. And this is the last story that we have of this group of people that are standing against King Ahab in the Baal worship. And they're growing so much that they come to Elisha with this request. They say, we're growing and we need to build something bigger. We're meeting in a school cafeteria and we need to go find something. <laughs> they're growing and they're looking to expand and they decide to go and build something for them to live and to dwell and to meet down by the Jordan River. The Jordan River is something that's symbolic, as we've talked about in these stories. It was this, this barrier that separated God's people from the land that had been promised to them. And God miraculously dries it up so that they can cross into the land of promise. 
And now they're going back to this river to create this gathering space that they could live in. So they come to Elijah and they say, can we do this? And Elijah approves of it. He says, go ahead. Go ahead. Then verse 3. Then one of them said, won't you please come with your servants? And Elisha says, I will. I'll come with you. Won't you come with us, Elijah? Why would they ask this? We don't want to go do this alone. We want you to be there. Well, Elisha is the head prophet. He's kind of the spokesperson for God. The presence of God is with him. And they want to go do this thing. They feel God has called them. But they know if Elisha goes with them, the presence of God will be there too. So they request this from Elisha. There's this old story in Deuteronomy about Moses and God's people when they're wandering in the wilderness and God tells them to go somewhere and do something. And they say, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to do it. There's something about being set out on a task and knowing that if God is with us, this task will be successful. So they ask two questions to Elisha at the start of the story. This company of prophets, this group of of people that are studying to be this prophetic voice in their culture. The two questions they ask are this. Can we do this? Are we allowed to do it? And two, will you go with us when we do it? Can we do this? And will you go with us? I think these questions are absolutely important, especially for God's people. When it comes to doing the things we feel like God has called us to, are we allowed to do this? And will you go with us? Even when we started Desert City Church and we knew there was a need for the church in this community, um, and it had been kind of on my wife and I, our radar for a while, knowing that we wanted to do it. And our thought was, can we do this? Are we allowed to do this? Can we do it? And we ran into this man named David Sywick. Some of you know David. David helped start Desert City. David has uh, since moved back to the East Coast. David was originally brought out here to plant a church in Desert Ridge, moved his family from the East Coast, came into Desert Ridge to start a church. The group that was supporting him decided, after he had moved his entire family out here, to pull the plug on the project. So he and his family were out here trying to figure out what to do. Just so happens he stumbled across... Uh, stumbled upon us and kind of the project that we were moving into. And he came and we met with me. And I remember we got boasted donuts. And we're sitting there, and he was telling me his story. And I was like, well, we're thinking about doing this. And he had this word for me that I'll never forget. He said, you should do it. You should start small, and you should start now. Start small and start now. And for me, I felt like this was a kind of this Elisha moment where I'm asking, is this something we can do? And David's like, I think you should. It felt like this word of the Lord that had hit me and said, start small, start now. Let's do it. But then the other question is, will you go with us? The question that we have to ask, is God in this? Will your presence go with us? And one of the things that we always wanted to have here as a desert city is the presence of God with us. We wanted to be a presence-driven church, a church that God's presence resides among us. So even though we're meeting in a cafeteria, you come into this place and our desire is for you to experience the living God, that this Holy Spirit that meets us here, that guides us, that transforms something within us is with us. Can we do it? Will God go with us? Something we ask as a church is something that we should also ask individually in our lives. As we think about the things that God's called us to, any kind of big decisions that come up in our life, Lord, can we do this? And will you go with us as we do it? Great questions.
The story goes on. Verse 6. Uh, sorry. The end of verse 4, it says, They went to the Jordan, they began to cut the trees. So after they're given the permission to do it, they go down to the Jordan, they start cutting trees to build this thing. And as one of them was cutting down the tree, an iron axe head fell into the water, and he said, OMG, oh my Lord. One of the translations says, alas. I don't know if that quite has the same sting, but he's freaking out, basically. And he cries out, and we find out why, because he says, this thing was borrowed and I lost it. Someone entrusted me with something to do this project, and I lost it. Have you ever borrowed something and broke it, borrowed something and lost it? I uh, have a neighbor, uh, my next-door neighbor, actually, really cool guy. He and his wife moved in a couple years ago. They don't have any kids, which means they have a lot of really nice things. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of kids on our street, uh, a lot of families that live on our street, and they're always outside playing, riding bikes and such. And one day, a couple weeks ago, he was outside. And he always like, is great with the kids. And he pulled out this toy. And it was like a monster truck remote control car. And it was probably like this big. And it was like all-terrain, like these souped-up tires. And he had like this control that had this massive antenna on it. Like, I wasn't sure if he was going to call in an airstrike or what he was doing with it. <laughs> But he's like, you, like playing with this toy, and all the kids are like chasing it on their bikes, having fun. He's like doing flips with it, like going over the curbs. And I walk out, I'm kind of like watching. I'm like, this is sweet. And he looks at me and goes, hey, you want to drive it? <laughs> I was like, heck yeah, I do. He's like, okay. So he hands it to me, kind of showing me how to do it. And I'm driving this thing. It's unbelievably fast. You can feel the power of it when you're driving it. It's like accelerating. And he's like, yeah, man, it's uh, pretty amazing, pretty much indestructible, do whatever you want with it. So I'm like hitting ramps with it. And, and you know, our street has like those, they're kind of like gutters, like where the, in, like the, the water flows down and it's kind of like this little bit of a decline on each sidewalk. But when you get to the corner of the street, the sidewalk is just, it cuts off. It's like your traditional sidewalk. Well, I was like hitting these ramps uh, and seeing the, you know, the, the car fly up, but I accidentally spun it out of control and rammed it directly into the sidewalk on the corner where it just cuts off. And it, what had happened was this thing that flew out of control hit it, flipped up in the air, and ex someone like set off a device that blew it up. I don't know. But it explodes, <laughs> splits in half, and lands. And we're just sitting there like, oh! And I'm thinking, like, that was awesome. <laughs> And I look at his face, and his eyes are wide open, and his jaw dropped. And I'm like, he doesn't think it's as cool as I think it is. And we go over to the car, and we pick it up. And sure enough, the entire body of it just snapped in half. And I'm like, oh, bummer, dude. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. And I thought it was one of the things where he's going to be like, ah, yeah, no big deal. And you know, and it, he's looking at it, and he, I'm like, oh, he's really upset about it. I'm like, oh, man. And I'm like. Was that expensive? <laughs> the first question I asked. He's like, yeah, it's pretty expensive. I was like, oh, bummer. OK. So I, uh, I'm really sorry, man. I can, I, can help. I can help pay for this. I think we could just like, get a piece to rebuild it. And he goes, yeah, that'd be great. I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> I'm like, like, oh, man, like, this isn't cool. He's not happy. And I had this feeling like I'm an idiot. Like He entrusted me with this thing. And I drove it for like two minutes, and I broke it. And it's obviously really important to him. And so I'm like, all right, just let me know like what it is, and like shoot me the Amazon receipt or whatever, and I'll help you out. And I just had this feeling of like I was entrusted with something, and I broke it. 
Junior high Jared comes back out, and I just <laughs> felt sick to my stomach. Being entrusted with something, and you break it. This story is a man has been given this axe to do this project that he feels called by God to do. And what happens? He loses the axe head, breaks off, flies into water, realizes that it's borrowed. We'll find out why that's important here in a moment. But I think what happens is just because God calls us to do something, and I think that this is what these prophets were realizing, just because God calls us to do something doesn't mean that what we're going to do is going to be easy. We live in this world of resistance. We live in this world where there's an evil one seeking to destroy our soul. We live in a world uh, that even in the midst of being in God's plan, we might find life extremely challenging, extremely difficult. Things don't go as we plan. Things don't go, we mess up, we make mistakes, we're a part of circumstances that are just difficult and broken. We live in this broken world. And here's Elisha's response when he freaks out. Elisha doesn't say, well, here's what Elisha says. He simply says this, where did it fall? Where did it fall? He doesn't say, you idiot. He doesn't say, I can't believe you did that. He simply engages him with this question, where did the axe head fall? Something about this reminds me of the story in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve take the fruit the fruit that was forbidden, the fruit that they're not supposed to have, and they eat it, and they realize that they're naked, and they're ashamed, and they're hiding from God. And when God shows up, his first question is, where are you? Where are you? Where did this fall? Where did this axe head fall? It's a powerful question. The prophet of God comes to them, and he engages them. He engages the problem. He asks this question. And then it says, when he showed him the place, Elijah took a cut, Uh, cut a stick and threw it there, and he made the iron float, which is this miraculous event where you're thinking, what in the world? Is there some sort of explanation of what this happened? This is the Jordan River. It's deep, it's muddy, it's murky, and it's at the bottom. And this thing floats to the top, and he says, reach out your hand and take it. And then the story ends. There's no commentary on it. There's no, here's what happened next. It's just over this miraculous thing. We don't even get the man's response other than that the problem is solved. So what is this story about? What does this story tell us about God? First thing is this, is that I think the story tells us that God cares about the small, ordinary things of our life. There's something practical about this that there's a problem, he cries out for help, something miraculous happens, the problem is solved. There's something about the the smallness that God engages. He he knows every detail of our life. He sees everything that we do. He's there with us in those experiences, and God cares. I remember I went to a a Christian school growing up, and I had a home ec class where um, I was learning how to sew things in middle school. And I think it was like the worst grade I got of any class was my home ec class. And Marcy could... um, yeah, it, it makes sense if you know me. i just not really good with domestic things. But sewing was something we were learning to do. And I remember we had this old, older teacher uh, that would teach us middle schoolers how to sew. And every now and then something would happen, like you would drop the sewing needle, and it would fall on the ground, and we couldn't find it. And she would stop the whole class to pray about it. 
And I always be like, this is ridiculous. Like, God is solving problems in, like, dark places in this world, and we're coming to him because we dropped a needle. And I just would, even as a middle schooler, thought this was ridiculous. And yet, the older I get, the more I realize how important it is to come to God with every detail of our lives, to abide in him, to be in tune with him, to see him in all the details, because the devil is in the details for sure. But to come to God and say, these small, ordinary things that you actually care about, I want you to just be involved in my life in those small, everyday details. John Newton poetically commentates on this story of the iron axe head floating with this poem. He says, not one concern of ours is small if we belong to him. To teach us this, the Lord of all once made the iron to swim. Not one concern of ours is small. There's something about the story that reminds us that God is involved in the ordinary, everyday details of our life. But this isn't just a small thing for this man that lost the axe head. In fact, it's actually a really big deal if you kind of look at what's going on here. Iron is expensive. This isn't like you can go down to Home Depot and get like a new, you know, axe for 15 bucks. Uh, I think my in-laws went axe throwing last night at some bar. I don't know, a bunch of pagans. But, uh, you know, it's not like axes are something that are common. And Like, we, we have axes. That's not a big deal if you lose an axe head. In this day, we have to remember, this is, you know, right after the Bronze Age, moving into the Iron Age, what this axe head, an iron axe head, this detail tells us that this is new technology. To lose something like this would be something that's super expensive. In fact, in 1st and 2nd Samuel, we find that the Israelites don't have weapons made of iron because they don't have blacksmiths that can forge the, the weapons together. So to have something like an iron axe head means that you got this new piece of technology that someone has entrusted to you. I heard one kind of modern scholar commentating on this. It would be like if somebody entrusted you with like a brand new Tesla, like it's a new technology, it's a new vehicle, but then you don't have like insurance on it. And so say you wrecked it, like, you would be in deep trouble. And it's not like you could just, you know, like, finance it because there's no, like, really banks at this time. So what do you do if you end up breaking something that's new technology that's kind of like state-of-the-art and it's expensive and someone has said, I trust you to use this, what does that look like for you? To have something like this iron axe head and to lose it was trouble for this little prophet. He was in this company of prophets. What it meant for him is that it's going to take me months to repay this thing. Some, would, some scholars said that it could have cost something like three to six months worth of wages, maybe even more, to repay something that was new technology for the time. And so for this prophet who is helping kind of build this place for the company of prophets, he's probably realizing that since I lost this, the reason he's freaking out is that it is going to be a life-changing wreck for him. A life-changing wreck where he has to give this thing uh, to repay it somehow. He has to reorder his life for the next six months to a year. Maybe even work as an indentured servant to the owner of this iron axe head. This is a really big deal. It's not just a small thing. He was given something, entrusted with something, this new technology, This is why we can't have nice things, right? Breaks off, falls into the river. 
And what this story reminds us is that God doesn't just care about the small things in our life, as we just read this at face value, but when we see that, that what he's been entrusted with is valuable and he breaks it and loses it, and yet God shows up and provides that God miraculously provides for our most desperate moments in life. When something has been lost, when something has been entrusted to us and we've broken that trust, God shows up and he fixes the problem. God miraculously provides in our most desperate moments. This would have been good news, right? For this prophet who thinks that he's just ruined it. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God is not only involved in the small things, but in the midst of this devastating thing that happened, he provides a way, supply, provide, fixes the problem. What we learn about God is that he cares about the details of our life, and when we're desperate, we can cry out to him, and he meets us in our need. But then we also learn something about mankind, about humans, and I think this is important. When we see what happens with this, this young prophet who loses this valuable iron axe head, he accepts the responsibility for the loss is the first thing. He accepts it, and it says, I did it. I need help accepting the responsibility. He knows that he's in trouble. He knows that he's been entrusted with something valuable. He knows that he's lost that thing. He comes to Elisha and says, help. Accepting responsibility for a loss, for a failure. I think this is so important because so often, especially in my life, I don't like to just accept responsibility for the things that go wrong. It's so much easier for me to blame it on someone else or on the circumstances or come up with excuses. And yet there's something here about accepting the wrong that's been done that I think is powerful because it, it grounds us in reality. I did this. I made a mistake. I need help. He acknowledges where it took place as well. The prophet says, where did it go? And he points to it. He says, it's over here. Acknowledging where the loss took place I think is important. Something about this, there's this act of confession made a mistake, or this thing happened and it went wrong. I was entrusted with this thing, I broke it. And he acknowledges it, he accepts it, and he acknowledges it. And I think that this is what confession is for us as humans. The things go wrong in our life when things break down. We don't do what we're supposed to do. We've been entrusted with something. Confession is simply owning up to reality. The church uses this phrase of confession and it's powerful, and it gets very churchy and something that maybe stress, stresses us out when we think about the idea of confession. But this is what confession means. It's owning up to reality. It's accepting and acknowledging something that's gone wrong in my life. And I need help. And then finally, he takes action to recover the loss. The axe head floats to the top. Elisha tells him to reach out and to grab it, which is amazing because like, you think that he would just be freaking out. I think he was so relieved he just grabbed it real quick. But he takes action after he sees that Elisha moves on God's part. He accepts it, he acknowledges it, and then he takes action. So we learn something about God in the story, we learn something about ourselves. But then there's also something very deep 
much deeper, I think, spiritually that's happening in this story. If you ask, like, why is this story in the Bible? What's going on here? Like, why is this brought, like, it's a story about an axe, and, like, we can, we can draw some, you know, some lessons about how God works in our own lives. But what's interesting is that when this story was finally brought into the, t- the Scripture, when it was canonized, when it was written down, uh, it had been passed down as a story with oral tradition for years. And finally, when we know when 2 Kings was finally gathered and written down on a piece of paper, God's people had been conquered and they were living in captivity. They were basically, once again, slaves. And they had all these questions about God's goodness. Does God really move on our behalf? Does God really break, fix broken situations? Does God hear our cry when we're devastated? And when they start to put these stories together of the way that God works, this story is placed there. And I think what this story does is it speaks of the goodness of God who's involved in our everyday lives and hears us when we're desperate and fixes things and circumstances that are broken. This is a story about God's goodness in this world. A good God who makes things happen for us. And here's what I've learned about, I think, the the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that we pray for. The kingdom of God is this idea of this future destination that we're headed to. But we also hear that there's this present reality, and Jesus' prayer is that that kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And when the kingdom comes now, and we catch glimpses of the kingdom now, what's happening is is that the, the, the things that are broken get put back together. The things that aren't as they should be become as they should be, as God designed them. And I think this story is a little glimpse into that. That's the goodness of God. And then there's this miracle that happens. And we hear it, and like our scientific minds want to go to some, or some explanation of what happened. We so quickly hop over the wonder of God in this world. I think it was Augustine who said, miracles don't happen contrary to how we, what, we, what we know about the laws of nature. Miracles happen... Miracles don't happen contrary to the laws of nature. Miracles happen contrary to what we know about the laws of nature. And we have this God who is wonderful and does wondrous works in this world, and sometimes we can't explain him. But those miracles of God breaking into our stories here and now point us to this future destination where everything gets made right. This story is a glimpse. It's a small miracle that God does, but there's something much deeper that happens. And then finally, the other thing that's much deeper is that there's something about here that was redeemed in this story. If this prophet had lost this thing and was this, this accident and he was indebted to it, that debt was paid, redeemed, figured out. God figures out the debt by raising this axe head to the surface. And there's something interesting about the way it happens. There's this stick that is cut, a piece of wood that is thrown into the river that allows the thing that has sunk to the bottom to merge to the top. The Jordan River is symbolic of a number of things. This is where Jesus is baptized. This is where God's people enter the promised land. This is where the axe head floats to the bottom of the murky, muddy river and is lifted to the top. And I think there's something in there for, for us with our own soul. Something happens with our soul at some point, and it happens to all of us, that we fly off the handle. 
we get lost in the middle of the river. We get placed into a situation that might seem hopeless. And yet the story of our God working in this world and the story of the cross, this broken stick that comes into the world that Jesus dies on, is that it takes our soul and it lifts it to float, to be found again. And this is the story of the gospel. Something that has been flown off the handle, lands in the murky river to be lost. And the power of God, he makes that thing float miraculously to be found, to be used, to be redeemed. And this is our story as a church. Whatever has happened to us, whatever we've done, whatever circumstances that we've found ourselves in, God can redeem those circumstances, can redeem our lives, and can redeem our soul. The story speaks of the goodness of God, the miracles, and God's redemption. So today, as we close with a time of communion, a couple questions to ask. Maybe your circumstances today is that you need to just come to the table and say, help. I need help. I've lost something. I've had something entrusted to me that I I broke that trust. I've had circumstances that are outside of my control, and I don't know what to do. I feel lost. I feel like I'm in trouble. And you just need to cry out for help. And we believe that God will meet you today in that need. And maybe today, maybe today you're like Elisha, and you have someone in your life that you know is going through something that seems hopeless. And you need the courage and the wisdom to meet him in that place, to help lift whatever the weight of it is that has sunk to the bottom. And maybe you just need the courage of Elisha, the wisdom of Elisha, to speak into their situation. Or maybe you feel like your soul is so heavy that it has sunk to the bottom of the river and there's no hope. Maybe you feel like it's lost in murky, muddy water. And today you see Christ to come to touch it, to allow you to float to the top, to experience redemption, to be redeemed. Not sure what the story means for you, where you're at in your journey. But we follow this God who looks at our circumstances that are hopeless and works miracles so that we have life that is truly life, who redeems our debts, who takes care of us and meets our needs. Tim's going to come back up and close us with a song. And we'll spend some time in just silence reflecting, and then when you're ready, we'll allow you to move to the table. We have communion set up on both sides of the room. Communion represents something that happened on the cross 2,000 years ago, this broken stick that was placed here to allow our souls to rise. The communion, there's bread and there's juice. They represent, they're symbolic, they're sacred, that represent the story that we're a part of. On the cross, God broke his body open and his blood shed, his blood poured out. That gives us life, life eternal. And today we come and we encounter God's presence at the table with wherever we're at within our journey. We ask God to move in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for these old stories. 
that are in your word. We read over them so quickly, Lord, and, and yet when we stop and we look at the details, we're reminded of your goodness to us, that you're a good God, that you're involved in the small details of our life, that you're, the, you're involved in the things that seem hopeless, that when we're desperate, you meet, you meet us in our circumstances. You make the axe head float. You make the iron swim. In the same way, Lord, the things that are weighing us down right now, that make us feel like we're sinking, that make us feel like we're lost and hopeless, Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would raise us today. You would allow us to float, to be found. You would allow us to swim. Your grace and mercy, Lord, that in miracle miraculous acts, Lord, that you would change our circumstances, that your kingdom would come in our life, that we'd be the people that you've called us to be. We're reminded that the story of Elisha, this is how you act in the world, and that as you've acted this way before, you'll do so again. That your grace is sufficient. Your mercies are new every morning. We ask that you would meet us here today, Lord. In your sons and we pray. Amen. When you're ready, feel free to move about the room for communion. Spend some time in prayer.